I love that song. You know, I was thinking as he was singing, I don't often think about um, the mansion. I do often think about being in heaven with our Lord Jesus Christ, but I can't say that I often think about uh, the mansion or the streets of gold, really. But I do often think about being in the presence of Christ without any sin. And it is such a joyful, joyful um, anticipation, uh, realizing that, you know, the irony is, I do believe, honestly, that soon the trumpet of the Lord shall sound. I do believe that that's actually going to happen pretty soon. I think that's true. I may be wrong, but I think it's true. But what I'm realizing is at 53, whether it's going to happen soon that everybody's going to leave or not, not, it won't be that much longer and I'll get to leave. Amen? And... Uh, It is wonderful to be forgiven, to have peace with God. And it is wonderful that the power of sin no longer has dominion over us. But I am becoming more and more aware all the time of the presence of sin in the world in which we live. You can see in, the, um, in people's faces daily, honestly, the weight the weight, the heaviness of selfishness, the effects it has upon them, the effects that our selfishness has on each other. And I'm really looking forward to that being gone forever. Amen? Whew, praise God. What a wonderful song. We come to chapter 3. Today's our introduction to chapter 3. It's our first look at chapter 3, verses one through seven. We looked at uh, chapter two, verses 11 through 25 for about six months. I want you to notice the word likewise. Take the word likewise. Now the word likewise tells us that it would be appropriate that we would establish the context. The context in this book, how does this likewise fit in. In other words, now please, please, everybody look up here for just a moment. The Word of God is inspired, okay? What we have in our English in front of us is an accurate translation of the very Word of God. The very Word of God wasn't written originally in English, but it has been providentially, accurately translated so that we can have the Word of God in English. But the paragraph marks and the verse marks were added so that we could talk intelligently about the Bible. Do you understand what I mean when I say that? In other words, when I said today, open your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 3, you were all able to open to the exact same place in your Bible. If there were no chapter divisions and verse divisions, I would have said this. Open your Bible to 1 Peter and keep glancing with your finger until you come to the following set of words. And that's how you would have had to find where we are in 1 Peter. So, but, but, having said that, likewise makes it very clear that this is not the beginning of something that isn't going on already. Yes? Everybody understand that? So what I'd like to do this morning specifically is to bring us into chapter 3 
by taking us through chapter 1 and 2 and into 3 and see how this flows together. Now notice this, if you will. Go back to chapter 1. I'm not going to make almost any comments. I'm just going to read. But I need you to hear this. Please pay attention, follow along, because you're going to notice the context for yourself. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold which perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love, in whom, though now you see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. So we see here at the very beginning that this is being written to those who realize, who know, who believe that Jesus is the Christ. That they recognize that Christ has come to live and to die to pay for their sins, to be resurrected, and to rule and reign now in our lives by sending forth the powerful Holy Spirit of God into our lives, making us into the men and women that He would have us to be by His power instead of by our power, causing us, even though we live in this present evil world, even though we have to go through heaviness while we're here, to be able to live a life of rejoicing with joy unspeakable and full of glory in our Lord Jesus constantly now. Amen. That's it. Very, very clearly. Then, starting here, he begins to talk about while you're here, how is it that we live? How shall we live as the children of God now? And then he begins to talk to us about this. What it looks like, the trials that we would go through, the difficulties that we would find in our lives. Now again, realizing this, remembering we are in the uh, First Peter, which is one of the um, general epistles, which are the parts of your, which is the part of your Bible that proves what do you really have? What do you really have? There are many professing believers in the world today, but many, perhaps even most of them, are not really born again. And here's the thing. It's one thing to go to church. It's another thing to have trusted Christ for your salvation, admitted your own inability to live like you should, and to be made a new creature. And those of us that are understand the difference. The, everyone that here that's really born again, everyone here that really is a new creature has spent some time 
in the energy that we had before we were saved, trying to do right before God and each other in our own strength and realize how horribly we still fail when we do that. We all recognize not only clearly but painfully what Romans chapter 7 is all about. The good that I would, I don't. The evil that I wouldn't, I still do. If left to myself, no matter how hard I try, I cannot live a Christ-like life. But because I am a new creature, if I will walk after the Spirit instead of after the flesh, God has the power to make me the man or woman or young person that he would have me to be. And that's why we praise him. That's why we rejoice in him with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Why? Because he is able. And our testimony is he is able. And we are witnesses unto him. Yes, we, we are living a life recognizing that all I want to glory in is the goodness and greatness of my Lord Jesus Christ. That's all I want to glory in. I don't want to glory in my church. I don't want to glory in my preacher. I don't want to glory in, in, in my doctrine. I just want to glory in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to live as God would have me to live. I do. I do want to live that way. And I hope you do. I expect that you do also. But recognize this book is telling us if you don't trust Christ, then the trial of your faith is is going to prove that the faith that you have is fleshly faith. And fleshly faith can't work. It just can't. It will be overcome. So now, we're not going to go through everything all the way through. I want to go now to verse 11 of chapter 2. Dearly beloved, what I want to do is set the context. I want to set the immediate context for the likewise in chapter 3. If you want to, if you want to take notes on this or put marks in your Bible... The, what, what is being said to us in chapter 3, verse 1, begins in chapter 2, verse 11, with dearly beloved. And it's going to go all the way through the end of chapter 3. That's what's going to happen. Now, what you'll notice is this. In chapter 3, verse 8, go down to chapter 3, verse 8. John didn't read it, but I want you to see a word. Anybody see the word that begins chapter 3, verse 8? What's that word? Finally. Now, either Peter didn't really learn how to preach... Or he doesn't know how to use the word finally, right? Now, how many people have ever been in a, at, a, at, a, at a church and heard the preacher preach and have him say, and lastly, or and finally, and there'd be like 30 or 40 minutes still left to the message? Anybody ever? I try not to do that. Mrs. Murphy, Mrs. Murphy said to me one day, Mrs. Murphy, a wonderful, godly woman, a saint here at the church who was a very great help to me. She was a very, you know, an older woman when I got here. And she said, one of the things I love about the way you preach is that you don't circle the airport for 10 minutes. You just put that plane right on the ground at the end. Amen. She said, when you say finally, you mean finally. And I thought, well, amen. I'm glad that works out well for you. Amen. So, so he says, finally. The reason that I point this out is this finally is the conclusion. Again, it doesn't really end until you get to the end of verse 22 of chapter 3. But it, is, it all runs from verse 11 of chapter 2 all the way through to the end of chapter 3. This is one um, lesson that's being shown to us, one thing that's being shown to us. So now, in order to get into chapter 3, verse 1, let's go back and read a little bit of chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Again, we've read it for many, many weeks, but I want you to hear it in context, lest you think that chapter 3 is simply going to begin something new for us. Dearly beloved, this is chapter 2, verse 11. I beseech you, as strangers and pilgrims, which, by the way, we heard in chapter 1, right? Abstain from fleshly lust, which we just talked about. If you're really a new creature, 
then the flesh should not have rule in your life. If you're not a new creature, then all you've got is religious effort in your flesh and it will fail. But if you are, hear me, please hear me. If you are a new creature, then you have the power of God in you to overcome your own flesh. And praise God for that. You will get no glory for the good things in your life, but that's because you can't produce the good things that need to be produced in your life. And if you're humble and glad, if you care more about others than you do about yourself, then all you really care about is, Lord, make me the kind of person that is a help to those that need help. Amen? And you're glad that God gets all the glory and they get all the good. Why would I care? I get the benefit of salvation. I get the benefit of being involved in these wonderful things that God is doing in somebody else's life that I have no business being helped to anyway. Amen? Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers, as pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak of you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, starting in verse 13. So here's what he's, going, here's what he's saying. You're going to be living in a world where people may say terrible things about the fact that you even believe that there is a God. And certainly that you believe this old religion of this Jesus guy who lived in Nazareth and who, who claims to have lived a perfect life. We say he lived a perfect life. Just being involved in religion gets you in a lot of trouble in America nowadays. You understand? But if Christ is in you, this is what he's saying. If Christ is in you, the one that you rejoice in with joy unspeakable and full of glory can be visible in your daily life. Now he's going to talk about that daily life. It starts in verse 13. The word submit here in verse 13. Put a little star there if you want to. Somehow to mark this. Go to verse 18. Servants, be subject. Mark that. Likewise, ye wives, in chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, ye husbands, in chapter uh, 3, verse 7. And then finally, in chapter 3, verse 8. What he's showing is this. And, it's, and he's, he's giving us levels levels of submission levels of coming outside of yourself and being able to live at these different levels to the glory of God to the good of others instead of defending yourself and insisting on what you want the first one is in chapter 2 verse 13 it says submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake so you know what that means this is what it means. When you're driving down the interstate and the sign has a speed limit on it, you're supposed to do what? A, follow the speed limit. B, be willing to get the ticket nicely if you don't follow the speed limit. Or C, go the flow of traffic and not worry about getting a speed limit. Or D, all of the above. You decide which one of those is appropriate. The point is this. We are supposed to live lawful lives in the government over, as the government is over us. We're not going to go and look at all of this. It says that, though, right? It says, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors. So the idea is this. We live in a society, and God intends Christians. Here's, what's, here's what I heard when I was in China. Okay, when I was in Lijiang. Lijiang is a small city in China. And a small city in China, I, won't, I, I don't remember the number. It's, a, it's, it's millions and millions of people, right? Because that's how it is in China. 
So this small city in China has learned this, that where there are Christians in China, it is profitable for the, for the, for the uh, um, civil area that they find themselves. Do you know what I mean by that? What I mean is this. Where there are Christians in China, it is good for the community because they are better citizens than atheists. They are better citizens than Buddhists. They are better citizens because they love the people around them and they obey the laws. Do you see? This is what this is saying. We, if we are who God would have us to be, then we should be able to live lovingly in the community in which we live. If you live in the, we live in the Hampton Roads area. I would imagine almost everybody here, unless you came up from um, uh, North Carolina, lives in the Hampton Roads area, one of the seven cities in, in the area. Probably you, most of us live there. So you live either Norfolk, Chesapeake, Portsmouth, Virginia Beach, Suffolk, that type of a thing. So we live in this area. And we, while we live here in this area, it, listen, hear me. It should be good for the people in this area that we live here. That's what God is saying. Then the next one goes on in verse, eight, uh, verse 18 of chapter 2. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. Now, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. So now we go to work. First we just live in the community in which we live, and now we go to work, right? And I mentioned this before, that almost all of us uh, have someone else that we would... Now, we don't call them master. How many, how many of you, wherever you work, have a boss that you see regularly? Raise your hand if, if you have a boss that you... Nice and high, just so I can get... Almost everybody, okay? How many of you call your boss master? Raise your hand up really high again if you call your boss master. And, and, two, and two teenage boys... Girls don't, you know, just stay away from teenage boys. They're just lunatics, okay? You know what I'm saying? I mean, you should marry them when they get to be 40, probably. You know what I'm saying? Because anyway, anyway, we'll just, we'll just leave that there. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> Which we don't call our boss master. But that is still what's before us here. What's before us here is this. You go to work. And you're the servant. And it says be subject. The idea of being subject is the same idea of submission in verse 13. In fact, it's the same idea over and over and over and over at every single level that we're going to look at. That's what God wants us to understand. Listen, here's what it comes. Look, look up here. Don't be selfish in the community in which you live. Don't be selfish when you go to work. That's what God is saying. You say, but, but you don't work where I work. And, and what this passage is clearly saying is, it doesn't matter where you work. Be a good employee wherever you work. You say, well, I have a terrible boss. This, this passage specifically was written to cover those circumstances. Do you understand? Now listen, what is the point? Because what the people that you work with need more than a good boss is someone who can walk in the light where they work. Someone who can walk in love where they work. Someone who can be at peace where they work, no matter what the circumstances are like where they work. The same thing is true in society. What, does, what do the college campuses of America need? What do the, what do the workforces of America need? What, does the, what do the communities of America need? And the answer is someone who can walk in the light Someone who can walk in love. Someone who can rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory even when things are terrible all around them. Amen? 
That's exactly, this is what this passage is telling us. Now that's all the way from chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 18, all the way to the end of this chapter, these things are said. And it's going to give us the example of our Lord Jesus Christ being in terrible, terrible circumstances and yet loving everybody while he's in those terrible, terrible circumstances. Amen? But listen, now hear me. But what's worse than living in perhaps a difficult community or going to work in a difficult place? What's harder than that? And here's the answer. Going home to his difficult situation. And that's what God is addressing. Now, let me say this. What I want you to notice in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, is that God is speaking to those who are married specifically to unsaved spouses. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't anything in these verses for those of us who are saved. And here's the reason why. Because all of us who are saved live with people who can behave like unsaved people. Amen? All of us can. All of us understand this. I can be an, a husband to my wife that behaves himself in the way that an unsaved man does if I walk after my flesh. And my wife can be that way if she walks after hers. Now, I happen to have the advantage of having a wife who is a better person than I am. So that works out to my advantage. But the context of what we're looking at is this. What about if the home life is difficult. What then? What then, Lord? What do you expect out of me then? So let's look at it. Likewise. So the likewise makes it very clear that all we're doing is picking up on the submit in verse 13 and the subject in verse 18. So here's what it says. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. Now I'm going to point this out. I want you to notice in this place in verse 1, it says, own husband. And then if you go down to verse 5 at the end of it, it says, own husband. Own husband. Look up here. Women are not meant to be in subjection to men. Do you understand? Do you understand? I remember years ago, there was a man here at the church who was having a disagreement with a woman who was not his wife. Here at the church, they were discussing something. And this is what he said, and I heard him say it. He said, you have to listen to me because I'm a man and you're a woman. And this is what she said, and I'm kind of paraphrasing, but what she said is this, you're out of your mind. <laughs> if you want to discuss this, you can discuss this with my husband. That's what she said. And I remember thinking, amen. Amen. Do you understand? Men are, no, men are in no wise superior to women. In no wise. Now, in the order of the house, God is saying this. There needs to be one person in the house who is the head. In the same way that the church needs one person that's the head. And it's not the pastor at the church, by the way. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Bible does teach us that men are meant to... Listen, here's the thing. Men are not superior, but they are meant to be the head in their own household, which makes them responsible for their house. That's what it's making it. So here's what it says. Likewise, you wives... Be in subjection. Same word as you find back here, by the way, in submit and subject. To your own husbands. Now here's, but notice, now underline this, because this is the important part. That if any obey not the word, they also may, without the word, be won by the conversation of the wives. What a tremendous truth this is. So what is this clearly saying to us? This is what it's saying. Your husband or your wife, it's going to talk about that in a little bit, your husband or your wife 
may not believe the word of God. They may not trust the word of God. They not, may not live according to the word of God. And here's what it says, but you should, even in those circumstances. And it's saying to the women, now listen, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. It would be harder to go home to a place that had someone in it they didn't believe than it would be to go to work in a place. Now, I worked in a lot of places where the vast majority of the people that I worked with were unsaved, right? But I, didn't ever, I never, as a husband, went home to a house where my wife was not born again. We were both saved before we were married. And so I do not know everything that's being spoken about in practice. In other words, I did not have to live like this during my marriage. But what this is clearly telling us is this. If your husband or your wife is not saved and they do not listen or obey the word, listen to or obey the word, you can still be the man or woman that God would have you to be. And not only can you, you can have a wonderful effect on them. Amen? Now let's, now let's keep reading and notice how wonderful this is. The conversation. Now again, the word conversation is the manner of living. It is the way you live your life. So the way you live your life matters. Now notice what it says. While they behold. Now here, I know I've said this a lot of times. You might want to underline this word behold. But remember the difference between look and behold, right? Look up, everybody look up here. Okay? That always, all it took for you to look up here was for you to stop looking wherever you were and to look in this direction. But if I said to you, I want you to behold this clock that I have, and, and, and probably sometimes you think to yourself, I wish the person that was preaching would behold the clock that was up there, amen? But, and I put it up, by the way, I don't put this clock up here for me, because I can actually see that clock. I put this clock up here for all of our guest preachers so that they'll be aware of just where, where they're putting you in line when you go out to dinner after we, after we have our morning message. If I told you to behold this, I would not use the word behold because it's not how we would say it today in modern English. What I would say is this, understand this. Figure this out. That's what I would say. Now notice, now let's go back and look at this word. While they understand your chaste conversation coupled with fear. This is not fear of the husband. This is fear of God. This chaste conversation, this holy, clean living is the life of a Christian living in a house where, listen, hear me, hear me. I can imagine going into a house where the person that lives there is not born again and there's nobody to pay attention to whether you're doing the right thing or not because they don't care whether you're doing the right thing or not. And the truth is, oh, they do care whether you're doing the right thing or not. They do. They do. They may actually give you a hard time while you're doing it. They may press you to lean in the wrong direction, but they do care that you have a power within you that's greater than the power that's within them because that's how they're going to see the power of God on display. They do not yet believe the word of God, but they will see the word of God being lived out in your life if it's being lived out in your life. Amen? That's what this is saying. While they behold, while they understand, while they look at until they can figure out your chaste conversation coupled with fear, living a holy life with a fear of God in an environment that's a difficult environment. Whose adorning, let it not be with the out adorning of the plating of the hair and the wearing of gold and the putting on of the apparel. Now, let's look up here just again. One of the things that I believe many churches in America have failed at, if you will, is the idea, um, I remember hearing it this way, many people come to church to close their eyes or to, or to eye the clothes. 
Okay? So in other words, some people come to church just to fall asleep, and some people come to church to see what everybody's wearing. Okay? And listen, what God is saying here is this. Church is not about, there's nothing wrong with being well, wearing clean clothes that are presentable. There's nothing wrong with that. But if what you're concerned about as godly has to do with really pretty hair and really pretty jewelry and really nice stuff, that's not godliness. That's what this passage is saying. So what it's saying is this. Don't, don't um, try to impress your spouse with outward appearance. Verse 4. But let it be the hidden man of the heart, and that which is not corruptible, even an ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which in the sight of God is of great price. I don't know what, you know, the latest this or the latest that, the latest fashion. I really have no, I mean, you guys can probably see just by looking at me. I have no fashion sense at all. And I never really had any fashion sense. I don't really care. Now, I will say this. I do understand technology. You see what I'm saying? So if I were going to be inclined in any direction, it would be in having the latest technology, but not in the latest tie, right? This tie is probably 10 years old, right? And again, I only wear it because it's appropriate to wear. Anyway, amen? Somebody said amen. Can I stop wearing Can I stop wearing this? Because <laughs> my wife said, no, you can't stop wearing No, no, amen. Thank you, thank you, amen. <laughs> I want to be a good Baptist pastor. I just thought I had to wear a tie to be a good Baptist pastor. <clears throat> but the inner, the inward man. Now listen, this is the same thing that worked in the, in the society, right? It's the same thing that worked when you went to work. It's the same thing that will work when you're at home. But here's the difference. Listen, what's the difference between being a good citizen and being a good employee? Well, a good citizen only has to behave himself in public when they're in public. And we're not in public that often. A good co-worker has to behave themselves for a little bit longer because we spend a great deal of time at work. But someone who's walking with God at home, now you can't fake this. And everybody should say amen. Right? You can't fake being a godly husband. You can't fake being a godly wife. You can't fake being a godly child. You can't. You can fake being a godly church member. You can't. Because we only see you for a little while. But you can't fake being a godly person at home. You can't. Because there's too much opportunity for people to see the real you. Amen? And that's what he's saying. And by the way, what does God think about all of the latest fashions? And the answer is nothing. But what does he think about a meek and quiet spirit? which in the sight of God is of what? Man, that is valuable. Amen? Someone who can be meek and humble. In the context, is talking about the wife. A wife that can be meek and quiet at home. By the way, again, it's talking about spouses. And we know this because what's going to happen is at the end of this, we're going to get a likewise in verse 7. But it's going to be a single verse long. And the reason it's a single verse long is because it's going to cover what has already been said in the appropriate context. That's what it's going to do. So let's just keep reading. We're close now. Verse 5. Now we're going to have an example. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also, and now here, underline this, who trusted in God. What is the key to being a holy spouse? And the answer is trusting God. That's the key. Do you understand? What is the key to all of this? And it is this. I may be strange and I may be scattered because everybody around me may not be like this, but I believe God at his what? 
word. And what do we find in, this, in the context that we're looking at right now already? We've already seen that the spouse that doesn't believe doesn't trust what? God at his word. It's what it says, right? Let's go back up to verse 1. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not what? The word. They may also without the what? Word be won by the way the wife lives her life. Praise God. So if you believe the word of God, your believing the word of God is profitable for the people that you live around. Praise God for that. This is tremendous. Is this not? I mean, how many, I mean, we have some of us, some of us know people that are not our husband or our wife. They might be an extended family member or even just an adult aged child of our, of our own house who does not walk with God. Well, you just keep walking with God. And if anything will help them, that will help them. And if that won't help them, nothing can. This is what I say as a pastor all the time when I counsel. If I can't give you the word of God to help you, I have nothing else to help you with. And here's why. Because nothing else can help you. Do you understand? It's not that I just that I have given my life to studying the word of God because it's the only thing I ever wanted to study. Why bother to study any book? I'll just study this one. If that won't help, go someplace else. That's not the point. There's nothing else that can help you. It's only God through his word that can help us anyway. And if I will walk in the light, if I will walk in love, I can be a help to my children and my wife and everybody around me if I can will walk the way God would have me to. And that's what he's saying. Amen? Now, so the old women who trusted in God adorned themselves, what? With a meek and quiet spirit, being in subject to their own husbands. And then we come to chapter, verse 6, and we're almost done. Verse 6 of chapter 3 uses Sarah obeying Abraham. Now, let me say this. Because Sarah and Abraham are in this passage, I believe many people believe that what we find here in 1 Peter is for saved people primarily. And that's, I've often heard it taught that way. I've heard this, this passage taught wrong, incorrectly, I should say, incorrectly a number of times. This passage, is not dealing, this passage is not dealing with the husband and wife relationship in the same way that the church epistles dealt with the husband and wife relationship. This is dealing with the husbands and wives where one of them does not believe the word of God. That's what it's dealing with. It's very clear that that's what's going on. And yet, it's going to use Sarah and Abraham. Why? I'm going to tell you why. Because Abraham, at a time of unbelief, is going to go down into Egypt. Yes? Yes? Anybody remember this time? And as he's going down into Egypt, he's going to notice that his wife is getting many, many looks from the men in Egypt. Yes? And what is he going to ask his wife to do? Anybody know? He's going to say, pretend or tell everybody that you are my sister. Not my wife. And why, by the way? Does he, even, he tells us why, yes? What's his reasoning? Lest they decide they want you and say, well, we can't have her if she's married to him. I know how we can make her single. We'll kill him. And then she won't have a husband. And then it won't be adultery, right? Murder's okay, adultery's not, okay? So we'll just kill him and then we can have her. And so what Abraham says is, I don't want to die. So, now listen. So let's pretend you're my sister. Now I think about this. There are very few things that would get me killed, but you touching my wife would get me killed. Do you understand? I can't think of him. I do not know a man who would ask his wife to give up her virtue because, so he could keep his life. 
And, I, and because of that, it causes my opinion of Abraham at that time to go way down. Do you understand? This is why, by the way, we're not saved by Abraham, which is why we're not saved by David, which is why they can't take the book because they're not worthy. Amen? Because they are men and they have failed. Abraham failed. And by the way, he is the father of the faithful, Abraham is, but he failed. David is a man after God's own heart, but he failed. Do you understand? But being faithful and having a heart that God wants you to have doesn't make you perfect. The blood of Jesus Christ makes you perfect. Or nothing does. And only the Lord Jesus is worthy. Only the Lord Jesus is worthy. And so God is using Abraham not as an example of a godly husband. He's using Abraham as an example of an ungodly husband. Why? Because it's an ungodly thing that he did. But what does she do? Now here's the key to this. If you go back to verse 5, okay, for after the, because we only have one example of, the, of, of women of old, right? For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also, who what? Here, look at here, listen to me. Trust in God, obey your husband. Here's, here's what I believe happens. Sarah, I need you to pretend that you're my sister so that they don't kill me. And here's what I believe she said. Well, she does say, you can go back and look at it. I will. And here's what I believe she does. Lord, my husband's making a mistake. And I need you to take care of me. Do you understand? And I believe that God took care of Sarah when Abraham didn't take care of Sarah. Do you understand? Do you understand? This is really, listen, this is critically important. There have been a number of times, there have been a number of times when, when a woman has asked me, when, when a spouse has asked me, I believe my husband's doing something that is wrong. And this is my question, do you believe that he wants to be wrong? And almost always it's a godly husband, and the answer is no, I don't believe he wants to be wrong. And my answer is this, then trust God, and God will overrule your husband. Because God can, I know he can, he's overruled me. God can overrule the husband when he makes a bad decision. It isn't about trusting Abraham. She called Abraham, Lord, in other words, honey, I am your wife and I will be submissive in this relationship, but I can't trust that you're doing the right thing right now, so I'll trust that God will overrule in this thing right now. Amen? This is great. Listen, this is important. Very, very important. We are now at the deepest, deepest human relationship, right? We started out in civil government, and then we went to work with each other, and now we're at home in the deepest, most intimate relationship, and in every single one of these, you can trust God. Not necessarily can you trust the people around you all of the time, but you can trust God. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. And now, by the way, here's the remarkable thing. We have a fear. Go back up to verse 2. There's a fear in verse 2, a fear of God. A fear of God in verse 2 will keep... Now, here, now here look up here. And, I, and I'm going to be honest with you. This is probably going to be the most convicting part of this to every woman here. It says, if you're not afraid with any amazement. And this is what this means. If you're not anxious during really difficult situations that come up fast. And how many women here would say I failed in that situation? Anybody want to raise their hand for that? Go ahead. Up. Yeah. How many men in here want to say that they failed in that situation, right? You just find out this terrible news at home, and you go home and you tell your wife this. Don't worry, honey. It's going to be fine. Now, listen, you might even have said that, but this was the expression on your face when you said it. Don't worry, honey. It's going to be fine. I'm going to find a new job. 
know what I'm saying? Right? What God is saying is this. If you're really, you know, I use Brother Ronnie Jacobs because he's the one that said it. How many times has he said it? And that is he used to be up all night long trusting God, right? And if you're up all night long trusting God, you're not trusting God. Do you understand? What God wants us to do is to trust him and to go to sleep. So here's the remarkable thing. At the very end, God shows the most difficult circumstance. The most difficult circumstance isn't just that your husband isn't a godly husband. It's when something tragic is happening and you don't have a godly husband. That's what he's saying. If something really tragic is happening and you can't rely on your spouse at all, God is saying, don't worry, I've got it. Don't worry, I've got it. I can fix this. I will fix this. In fact, I brought it. And I brought it, listen, not for you to fail. I brought it for you, for them, for your unsaved spouse, for your untrusting spouse to be able to see that in this terrible, terrible circumstance, you can trust me. And you have the opportunity to trust God during that time and to make the, listen, won by the conversation of the wife. What conversation? Coming home to a lousy husband and not being amazed during a difficult time. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? Honestly, isn't this a remarkable truth? Yes or no? Now remember, what is the point of 1 Peter? What is the point of 1 Peter? And this is the point. What do you really have there? What do you really have there? Do you really have joy unspeakable and full of glory? Or do you really have typical American Christianity? And see, here's what God wants for us. Now, by the way, I really believe that you can be born again and have the failures that we're seeing in this passage, which is why it's taught wrong so often. It's, it's, it's taught incorrectly because so many people are used to this kind of failure in a good godly marriage. But the point is this. Not only should it not exist in a good godly marriage, it doesn't even have to exist in an ungodly marriage, meaning one spouse is saved and the other one isn't, if the one spouse will trust God during a difficult time. Yes? No? You say, oh, that's, that's impossible. It's not. It's not. It's not. Jesus could do it. Right? You say, oh, well, of course Jesus could do it. Well, does the Holy Spirit live in you or not? Yes or no? See, isn't this really what God is wanting to accomplish? Look, we're all going home in a little while. If you're born again, you're going home in a little while, right? When we go home, we won't have to worry about any of this. Really, honestly. And it's very, very clear. We all know that we're going to receive the end of our salvation, right? We, the, the end of our faith. Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your soul. Praise God. But this is for now. And listen, I know I've said this a lot, but what does my extended family, my extended family has been hurt horribly by my failure. Horribly. My immediate family has been hurt horribly. This church has been hurt horribly by my failure. But here's what I've come to understand. Really, really in the last five years, it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. It really doesn't have to be that way. Why? Because Jesus is better than that. Because Jesus is more powerful than that. He really is. The Holy Spirit does live within me, praise God. I know he does, and so do you if you're born again. He lives within me. He has the power to do something I don't have the power to do. I, he is, listen, when the amazement comes, when the tragic situation comes, is, is the Holy Ghost anxious? Not even a little bit. So why am I? And here's why. Because I'm obviously not walking after the Spirit, right? i got to be walking after the flesh, yes, right? If the Holy Spirit is not amazed in this tragic situation, and I am, something's wrong, but not with him. Something's obviously wrong with who? Well, you guys got quiet. Real, I mean, I'm telling you, everybody's feet are off the ground at this point, aren't they, right? right? Your toes are just really, I'm, it's just, just, listen, God wants us to have victory. 
in our lives. Some of you, some of you have unsaved loved ones. Some of you have unsaved spouses. And what God wants to say is this, I have the power to make your life so remarkably different they can see this. And it may not be your spouse. It may be an extended family member that God wants to do this in their life. But who's going to do it? He is. And how did it happen in Sarah's life? She trusted, what's it say? The pastor's told us she trusted God. Not Sarah, not Abraham, God. We need to start trusting God, yes? No matter what the circumstances are. And by the way, let me say this. Don't just trust God, talk to him. Talk to him about it. You met, you, you, some of us haven't spent enough time talking to God about the difficult thing in our life. We have talked at God. Yes? You understand the difference? Talking at God is this. God, I need you to fix this. God, I need you to fix this. That's not the same thing as talking to him about it. That's what God wants to do in our lives. Now, let's be done. We're almost done. And then you get to chapter uh, 3, verse 7. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them, meaning an unsaved wife, according to knowledge. Remember, likewise, likewise, likewise. The same thing is still going on. This intimate relationship, husband and wife relationship, there are wives living with unsaved husbands, there are husbands living with unsaved wives. And he says, if you are a husband living with an unsaved wife, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, as, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. And this is a tremendous truth. God would have us, God would have all of us not to have our prayer life hindered through the unbelief. If you regard iniquity in your heart, he will not hear you. If you are not going to believe God, don't pray. And yet you must pray. So here's, let me say this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to out a lot of people that I've heard pray privately. This is what I hear a lot when I hear people pray. When I say privately, I mean just a few of us together. And this is it. Lord, I, I, I need to ask you something that I know I don't trust you for. Anybody ever been there? No, I think, go ahead, you know, I, well, I know some of you have. Some of you need to raise your hand because you've done it in front of me. Listen, I need you to do something that I do not trust you for. You know what that's saying? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. And guess what? He'll meet you right there. You just got to be honest at the beginning. Lord, I am amazed. I shouldn't be. Look, it does you no good to pretend you're not amazed if you are. If you're afraid of the circumstances, tell God you're afraid of the circumstances. Confess to God that you're afraid of the circumstances. But then tell him, but I know you're able to do this. Right? Right? Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Yes? A leper. If, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. What does Jesus answer? I will. I love that. He starts, that he starts there. I will. Right? What he's saying is this. It is my will. You're right. If you will, you can. I know you have the power. Are you willing to make me clean? Jesus said, I will. I am willing to do so. God, can you help my family? Can you help my marriage? Can you help us in this situation? I can. Would you? I will. I will. Just ask me to. Just ask me to. But ask me in faith. Not wavering, right? I'm telling you, and this goes back to, this goes back to James, right? In James, we were taught, don't ask God for something you don't really believe he can do. Why? Because he's not going to hear that prayer. But you can ask God to do something that you don't believe he can do if you're at least willing to be honest about that part of it and start there. Lord, I, don't, I, I know in theory you can do this, but I can't see it happening. And God will say, well, let's talk about that. And, you know, and by the way, if you're going to do that, you should spend a little bit more time in the Psalms. 
where you see David coming before God in really difficult circumstances. And by the, end of the, by the end of the psalm, what is he doing? Praising God for victory that hasn't even happened yet. Right? And listen, we're not talking about, what's the word? The power of positive thinking. We're talking about the fact that he suddenly became aware of the person that he was talking to. And he said, wait, you can do this. What am I worried about? Right? Right? You can do this. You can do this. I can't do it. We can't do it. God can do it. This is what he's saying to us. We'll pick this up next week. Father, thank you. Thank you for this wonderful, wonderful truth, Lord. I thank you that, you are, that you've brought us to this deep, deep relationship, Lord, in our lives. And you have shown us through your word today that you are able to use trusting you to the benefit of those that we love, even if they don't yet trust you. Lord, I ask you that you'd bless each and every one of us. Lord, that we would be honest with you about this. Lord, I'm aware right now that I believe there are some here this morning that you really want to speak to concerning this. And Lord, I ask you that you would use this time, Lord, here in just a moment, going to actually give an invitation. Lord, I believe there are people that you want to give victory to today concerning this, that, you, that probably need to talk to you about not trusting you. And Lord, I know that you want to do this. I thank you and I praise you in Jesus' name.